0: Um, got a phone call yesterday, and uh, middle of the third quarter of the Longhorn game, and asked me, "Hey, are you watching this?" And I said, "No." I turned it off before the half before halftime because I just emotionally I can't do it anymore. All right, being let down every single week, and so now I'm on the search for a new team, and I, I think I'm going to jump on the bandwagon of the Horn Frogs. I mean, it's. If you guys will take me, if you'll have me, uh, I think I'm just on a jump there, and uh, so I won't be disappointed anymore. So, uh, but uh, hey, before we get started this morning, just want to uh, I want to make you aware, um, and uh, for all of our 60 plus crowd, and this crowd has just been blowing up uh, since uh, in, the la- in the last year. Uh, this crowd and our 20 something crowd, and uh, so we thought, man, we're going to get the 60 plus together. And, uh, and I know I don't really, I'm not in that category yet, but my hair is in that category. Uh, I feel like I'm in that category, uh, you know, just with a seven-year-old trying to keep up with him. Uh, but uh, so on Sunday night, November 6th, uh, we are uh, going to gather with our 60-somethings, and we're going to play bunko. And uh, so we're going to have dinner. Uh, it's, a, it's a potluck, okay? And that kind of scares me as a germ freak. So if you're coming to that, I need, I need you to like, promise me you're not going to cook like my grandmother, okay? You know, she was stirring stuff and then she would taste it, <laughs> add a little bit more salt, take the spoon, stir, okay? And I was just done. So you got to make me a deal. You won't cook that way. And uh, we're going to have a great time on November 6th. So if you are... In that crowd, we really, that, that age bracket, we would love for you to come. We want to let you guys meet one another and really kind of kick off some things. And so that would be a great night to do that. So uh, just make sure we have your number because we're going to send out some texts this week, uh, do some phone calls and kind of get a head count, what you're bringing. And so we have enough dice uh, that we can play Bunko. And the 20 somethings are like, hey, we want to play Bunko. And I'm like, well, you'll have your turn. But uh, we're going to let the experts handle it first. So. Uh, anyway, so there's that. I want to make you aware of that. So um, let's get into our series. We've been going through the book of John. Uh, We've got, after today, we've got three installments left. We've been going through this thing for almost a year now. Uh, And what we're doing is we're looking at the life of Jesus uh, and the life that he calls us to uh, as his followers. Uh, And today is this classic Passage of Scripture, this classic scene of the arrest of Jesus, and, and as we go through this passage, we're going to see three great things, and I just want to give them to you up front, kind of, uh, and let me uh, give them to you up front, and then we'll unpack them as we go on and spend the rest of our time uh, together. Um, but uh, what we're going to see today is we're going to see the greatest claim in the history of the world. Okay. The greatest claim in the history of the world, the greatest problem that you and I face, and the greatest solution that's offered to us all in this passage. So the greatest claim, the greatest problem, and the greatest solution all found in John chapter 18. So John chapter 18 this morning, if you have your Bibles, if not, you pull it up on your phone or we'll put it up on the, uh, on the screen for you. But John chapter 18, as we talk about the greatest problem, the, great, uh, the greatest claim, the greatest problem, and the greatest solution. So let's, let's talk about this greatest claim ever to be made. Uh, John chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished praying, he, he left with his disciples and he crossed the Kidron Valley. So they're outside of Jerusalem and they're, uh, they're going down this valley. There's a, there's a big cemetery Uh, over here as they're walking along the uh, side of that. And they're making their way up to this uh, olive farm, uh, this garden where all these olive trees are. And on the other side, there was a garden and he and the disciples went into it. Now now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to, to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers. Now underline that, we're gonna come back to that but a detachment of soldiers, that usually meant about 200 soldiers, okay? Um, a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, they were the um, religious experts. They were the experts in the law. They were like lawyers. They, were, they, they knew the first five books of the Old Testament by heart. They knew all 130-something uh, Jewish laws. And so they were experts in the law, the Pharisees were, and they were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen uh, to him, he went out and asked them, who is it you want? They replied, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. Now, Now, let's talk about this greatest claim here. Now, for translation purposes, the translator's to translate this phrase of what Jesus said from from the Greek to the English, they really had to use I am he. It it makes the most sense in our language. Uh, But what Jesus literally says, what he really said is I am. Okay, now that's a huge difference between I am he and I am because Jesus is using the name, the Old Testament name of God, I am. If you go back to Exodus chapter 3, um, Moses encounters God in the, in, in, in the passage about the burning bush. And um, Mo, the burning bush, God speaks out of this burning bush that's not being consumed by the fire. And he says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, well, who do I need to tell Pharaoh uh, sent me? What is your name? And God says, tell Pharaoh that I am sent you. Okay, now, Fast forward to John chapter eight. We were there a few months ago. And the Pharisees, um, you know, they're upset with Jesus and the teaching that he's doing. And they say, you know, do you think you're greater than our, than our ancestors, or forefathers, Abraham? And Abraham was, I mean, he was the patriarch. He was the one that God started this uh, whole uh, religion of Judaism with. And, and Jesus says that before there was Abraham, I am. In other words, before Abraham ever walked on this earth, I existed. And so what Jesus is saying that when he uses the verb, I am, or that uh, he's using the Hebrew verb for to be. Now, when when God says my name is I am, what he's saying is I I am. and, And when he uses this Hebrew verb to be, he's using it without a um, without a subject. Okay, when we use to be in our, in our English language, it needs a subject attached to it. But what Jesus is saying is I am. In other words, he's saying that with me, there is no beginning, okay? With me, there is no end. With me, there is no cause, there is no reason. It's just I am. In other words, everything hinges, everything depends on me i am holding and sustaining everything in this universe that that planets aren't colliding with one another because i am is holding everything In place, we're not floating off the face face of the earth because you know God created gravity and He's holding things together in His hand. The sun doesn't drift closer or further away from the earth because I am is holding things together in His hands. Now, every other religion in the world says that the way to find God. Uh, it says says you know that, that their way is to find God or their way is to find truth or their, you know follow their way, and it 's the way to live but but what Jesus is saying is i am I am the God of the universe, and I came to find you I came. To rescue you, I came to live the life you can't live and die the death that you deserve. And that's what makes the difference between Christianity and every other single religion on the planet. Every religion is about us trying to work our way to God, but Christianity is about God Himself coming to rescue us. Now, unfortunately, the world will say that all religions are equal and you just kind of pick and choose the one that works best for you. But Jesus says he is the one true God and he came to rescue us. And and when Jesus says I am, that demands one or two responses from us. It either demands that we respond and we reject that claim that Jesus is God, and that we chalk him up as another you know a narcissist leader who was a lying lunatic and got what he deserved, and maybe he said some good things about how to live, but it basically got what he deserved as an insurrectionist, or if Jesus really is God and we adhere to that and we And we believe that and we embrace that, then the only natural response to this greatest claim in the world that Jesus is God is that we should fall to our knees and say, Jesus, command me. But the problem is much of our worldview is seen through this Western culture lens. And as a result, our response to this claim is pretty tepid, it's pretty mild. See, the latest research, if you look at some studies, where Christianity is exploding, where the church is growing by leaps and bounds, it's in places of the world that it is illegal to be a Christian. Places in Africa and Southeast Asia, that these are places that if you're caught being a Christian or if you're caught... With the Bible, then, you know, potentially you could have everything uh, uh, confiscated. You could lose your property. You could lose your job. You could lose health care. You might be arrested. Your family might be arrested. Or even worse, you and your family might be executed. And in these places of the world, it demands that their response to this greatest claim of I am, that Jesus is God, is anything but mild. They're going all in at the cost of even their lives, and yet the church and Christianity is exploding in these areas of the world. But if you look to the West, and when I say West, I'm talking about Australia and and, uh, Europe and North America, because our response is so mild to who Jesus is and this claim, the church is dying. Christianity is in the decline in these regions of the world. Why is that? And it's probably because our response to this claim of Jesus is very mild. And we're just like, yeah, I get the Jesus thing and I believe all that. But you know what? It really doesn't impact every arena of my life. In too many days, I find myself that that's my response to who Jesus is. And in those days, I need to go back to consistent moments and cognitively process this claim and emotionally embrace this claim that Jesus is God. And he didn't wait for us to come and obtain a status to reach him. He came down to us and he found us and rescued us from our sin. Jesus is God. It's the greatest claim our ears will ever hear and our hearts will ever embrace. But we have a problem. And it's not really just a problem. It's the greatest problem that we have. And, and look, at, look at verse six. So Jesus says, I am. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am, okay, they being the soldiers and everybody with them drew back and fell to the ground. So Jesus says, I am. And these, these soldiers, they, they fell to the ground. Now, these soldiers that were with Judas, they were battle hardened soldiers. Okay. They were imperial troopers. They, they, had, they, they had seen the worst and, and, uh, of enemies. And there's 200 of them because that's what you need to put down a uh, insurrectionist in his following. And so when they um, when Jesus says, I am, scripture says that they were knocked flat on their backs. Now, watch, listen, don't miss this that nobody can stand on their feet in the presence of God, and everybody loses their footing no matter who you are, no matter how trained you are, no matter how tough you are, that according to this, that nobody can stand on their feet in the presence of God. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. Moses falls to his face when he's in the presence of God. Uh, Isaiah experiences the presence of God and says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and an unclean heart, and I live among a people with unclean lips and he falls his face to the ground. The prophet Ezekiel, any any time the, the the presence of God, when the presence of God came and inhabited the tabernacle, that the, all the priests fell to their faces because they could not stand in the presence of God. Fast forward to to the New Testament and Peter, uh, at the beginning of this series, um, Peter finally realizes who Jesus is and he falls to to his knees and he says, I am a sinner, get away from me, Jesus. Nobody can stand in the presence of God. And here's why. Because when we get into the presence of something bigger and greater and grander, it knocks us off our feet and we lose our footing. Let me illustrate for you this way: Have you ever, have you ever tried to wade out into the middle of a rushing river? Okay, and I'm not talking about Rush Creek. Okay. I'm talking about a rushing river where um, snow is melted in the mountains and it's made its way into a river and you're trying to get out into the middle of the river or maybe you've seen it in a movie and, and you know, you're just kind of going one foot at a time. Well, eventually when you get in the middle of the current, what happens? You're swept away. You're knocked off your feet because the current is bigger and grander and greater than our own strength and our own ability to balance ourselves. And when you and I get into the presence of something bigger and grander, than the presence of God, nobody can keep their footing. And here's, the, and here's our problem. Our self-image, okay, is based on something. I mean, it takes a little bit of work to kind of self-process and self-diagnose and peel back the layers. But what is our self-image built on? I mean, is is it built on a title or position or appearance or relationship status or, you know, how our kids are doing or income or possessions or lifestyle or whatever? And because our self-image is built on something, our self-image is fragile. Our ego is fragile. Our psyche is fragile. And I know it doesn't always feel like this is true. And some of us may be like, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm a little bit stronger than that, preacher. Well, whatever that is that we build our identity on, our self-image, when something happens to that, what happens to us? Man, we freak the smooth out. If our self-image is built on a job, and, and, and an income, and a, and a title, and a position, and power. What happens when something happens to that job? We panic. Or maybe maybe our self image is built on our kids, and, and you know, kids they they grow up and they leave the house. At least that's what I'm told they do. Um, but but if that's our self image, and they grow up and leave the house, what happens to our self image? It crumbles. See, our self-image, our identity is fragile. Or, or what happens when, you know, it, you know, our self-image is based on something, but we get around somebody who has bigger or better. You know, we get around somebody who's more powerful or prettier or richer or healthier or smarter or happier or has something newer and shinier. What, what begins to happen in our, in our hearts and minds? What happens is we start to feel insecure. I mean, it's just natural. It's just part of being human but if we start losing our footing in the presence of human glory somebody who's richer, powerful pretty or whatever what makes us think we'll be okay in the presence of God's glory and when we say God's glory we're talking about everything that he is he's holy he's righteous he's powerful he's mercy he's grace he's loving he, he you know he's a judge I mean all of that Is God's glory. What's going to happen to us when we get into God's glory? What makes us think we're going to be able to stand? See, the problem is we won't be able to stand. Because even on our best day won't be good enough. Even if we rack up all these religious accomplishments, even if we help all these people, even if we really, really modify our behavior, even on our best day, it's not going to be good enough to live up to God's holy standard. That's our problem. Every single one of us have sinned and what we deserve our sin is separation from God, not only now, but for eternity. And unfortunately, the solution, we, we do not have the ability to come up with our own solution. But here in John chapter 18, we see the greatest solution that's offered. Look at verses 6 through 9. So when Jesus said, I am, they drew back, fell, fell to the ground, and again, He asked them, who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. And if you are looking for me, and that word looking, it really means demanding. If you are demanding me, then let these men go. And this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. And I have not lost lost one of those that you gave me. Now, So so when the soldiers arrived, Jesus, the disciples, Jesus realized the disciples are in danger. The disciples kind of realized they were in danger too because there's probably, remember, in a detachment, there's probably about 200 soldiers. And because you need that many soldiers to put down an insurrectionist, okay, who's causing trouble. But Jesus says, if you're looking, if you're demanding me, then let them go. And the word that, that Jesus uses for let them go is translated as forgive them. Forgive them and take me. Take me instead of them. It's me for them. And right here we see once again this concept of substitution. We see this concept of substitutionary atonement. That Jesus' life for not just the life of these 12 disciples, but Jesus' life for our life. Jesus' life to pay for the sins of the world. Look at verses 10 through 14. And it says, then Simon Peter, who had a sword. Now, I don't know what a fisherman is doing with a sword, but he has a sword. And he drew it and he struck a high priest servant cutting off his right ear. Notice he didn't go after a soldier. I mean, Peter's smart. I'm not going to go after a soldier. I'm going to go after, you know, one of the priest helpers. And he cuts off his ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. Well, that's important because this is just one more example of John saying, hey, I'm going to put this story in this very specific detail because he knows some of his readers are going to be like, hey, I know a guy who knows a guy who knows Malchus. Let's go ask him if this whole thing is true. And they'd go to Malchus' house, beat on the door. It's late. Hey, we got a question. Can we see your right ear? You know, oh yeah, Jesus did put that back on. Okay, did that really happen? You know, kind of deal. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. And they bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. And Caiaphas, who, who was the one who advised the Jewish leaders, that it would be good if one man died for the people. Now, all through the Old Testament, we'll read about the cup. And any time the cup is referenced in the Old Testament, it's always equated with judgment and suffering and punishment and justice and wrath. When you read about it in the Psalms, or we read about it in the prophets, it's always associated with that. And what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 18 is that I'm going to the cross. And I'm going to have all that judgment, all that justice, all that punishment, all that wrath, all that anger come down on me instead of you. All the judgment and wrath that the world deserves for their sin, that you and I deserve for our sin. Jesus says, I'm going to have it come down on me instead. I'm going to be rejected so that you can be accepted. I'm going to be cast out so that you can be brought in. That Jesus came and he lived the life that we can't live and he did it flawlessly. He did not deserve to die. Death had no hold on him, but he willingly died the death that you and I deserve. And the gospel tells us that the one true judge came down and took on his own standard of judgment for us. So that on judgment day, We can stand before a holy and righteous judge. Not based on our own performance, but based in our faith in Jesus' performance for us. Jesus died so that through faith in him we can be accepted. And that's the greatest solution, is Jesus for us. Now, a couple of just really practical takeaways, and then and then the band will come and as we you know, get ready for um, communion. But practical application number one. Anytime somebody criticizes us, and we all know what it feels like to be criticized, right? I mean, if you're a parent, you know what it's like to be criticized. Um, no parents laughed at that. Okay, all uh, right, maybe too close to home, too close to home, kids not criticizing you. Um, no, we all know what it's like to be criticized. And so what are we going to do? You know, are we going to lose our footing and criticize back? Or do we say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, time out. Because of my faith in Jesus, I have the approval of the creator of the universe. And so what they said about me, it does hurt and it does stain. But you know what? Who cares what they say? I have the approval and acceptance of the creator of the universe. That's how we practically use the gospel. Or maybe maybe betrayal. People wrong us and betray us. And do we lose our footing and feel like we have to take matters in our own hands and we're not gonna get even, we're gonna get better? Because if that's our response, if that's our reaction, then we're gonna become bitter and angry. Or do we grab hold and embrace the gospel when you say, Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Jesus has forgiven me of everything that I've done, and so I'm going to forgive this person and I'm gonna trust that one day Jesus will make all things right. And then the last one, and it's probably my favorite part about this story, it's it's Peter's reaction. And, and maybe it's not really Peter's reaction, but it's Jesus's response to Peter. Now remember, you know, Jesus, I mean Peter he feels threatened, and what does he do? He takes out a sword and he strikes. And remember Peter has been He's been following Jesus. He's been with Jesus for three years. He's been listening to the same sermons for three years. He's been watching Jesus do the same miracles for three years. He's been camping out with Jesus for three years, traveling with Jesus for three years. And for three years, he's heard Jesus say, I did not come to rule, but I came to die. I didn't come to pick up a sword and force my way into people's hearts, but I've came to love, lay down my life that people would bring me into their hearts. That I came to be betrayed. I've, came, I've come to die on the behalf of the sins of the world. And Peter heard this and heard this and heard this. And what does he do? He takes his sword and he attacks. And I think my favorite part of the story is what doesn't happen. I love the fact that in that moment, Jesus doesn't take a step back and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I changed my mind. Take this idiot. He obviously doesn't get it. He's listened to me for three years. He he has heard and heard and heard and I've given him chance after chance after chance. Take him instead of me. And aren't you glad that Jesus didn't do that to Peter and if he didn't do it to Peter he won't do it to us but what does he do to Peter he pulls him aside pulls him close and says Peter let's go over the gospel one more time cup judgment wrath father Forgiveness, life for you. Then Jesus walks over to the soldiers and allows his hands to be tied, and he begins his journey to have his hands nailed to the cross for us. That's his unyielding and, and, and unconditional love for you and for me. And so to remember that, to embrace that with our hearts and our minds this morning, we're gonna take communion. So I'm gonna ask those who are serving, would you go ahead and come and get to your stations? And here's how we do communion here in case it's your first time here. It's not based on membership because we don't have membership, but it's based on where are you with the Father? That the table of mercy is open to anyone who would say, I have put my faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for me, that I'm not trying to make myself better, but because I know even on my best day, I can. not I have put my faith and my confidence and my trust in Jesus and what he's done for me. And my response to that kind of gift of love is I'm, I'm trying my best to, I'm not perfect. I'm like Peter a lot of days, but I'm trying to live my life out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for me. And I'm not perfect, but I'm striving. I, I, I'm trying to trust Jesus in every aspect. So that's who the table of mercy is for. And so as you, in just a minute, as you go to one of these stations, that they're, as you take a piece of bread that represents the body of Christ, they're just gonna remind you, hey, the body of Christ has been broken for you. And as you take a cup of juice that represents the blood of Jesus, they're going to remind you, hey, the blood of Christ has been freely spilled out for you. This is the atonement for your sin. You didn't have to do anything. Jesus did it all. So quit trying to make it up to him and embrace the gospel and live it out freely every day. That's what communion is about. And let's reflect on his greatest claim. Jesus is God and he doesn't wait for us to get to him. He came to us to address our greatest problem is our sin problem that put us in a hopeless situation. And then we have the greatest solution known to mankind and it's Jesus dying for us. Let's let communion be about that this morning. And just maybe it would be the catalyst to our tomorrow in living our life right? Not because we have to, but because we want to have gratitude for him.